Now hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel chapter 24, concluding our study in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Hear now God's word. Again, the anger of Yahweh was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word. We submit ourselves to its authority today as we conclude our study of your servant David. Uh, May we see more and more our King Jesus, both in his faults. May we yearn for our perfect king in his successes. May we see a representative of his greater son, uh, our Savior Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity now to enter your word. Uh, May I be a clear and bold witness of the things in the word. Open all of our hearts and open all of our ears to receive these things. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you experience this, I've done it many times, and anytime I read a novel and I come to the end of it, especially if it's one of those longer novels where you spend a lot of days or weeks getting to know the the characters, getting inside their head, hearing their internal dialogue, their their fears, their anxieties, their uh, aspirations, You, you walk around with them in their environment the whole time you're reading the book. And then you come to the last page and you start to feel as if you're losing a friend. You've, you've, you've lost these people that you've met and gotten to know and now you have to say goodbye. Well-written books give you a sense that these are real people that you're becoming acquainted with. And when you put the book down for good, you don't get to spend time with them again, unless the author writes a sequel or, or you read the book again. Uh, but even then, a series of books comes to uh, an end at some point and you... Uh, don't get to uh, live in that world again. And we're at that point now with uh, the close of David's story in 2 Samuel. Uh, He gets a few verses at the opening of 1 Kings, but at that point, he's in the background of Solomon's story. For all intents and purposes, this is the end of David's story in in the scripture. And so now it's time to say our goodbyes. We've spent 40 chapters with David ever since he was anointed as a boy uh, by Samuel, where we met him. 40 chapters with David. We started 1 Samuel back in March of 2017. Now we've taken a lot of breaks and we've studied some other things in between, but we've been, we've spent all this time with David. I think it's remarkable that we've got 40 chapters in 1 and 2 Samuel and they get 12 more chapters over in 1 Chronicles, 52 chapters of David's life. That's more than 12% of the narrative of the Old Testament is taken up with David. That's, that's pretty extraordinary. 40 chapters in 1 and 2 Samuel. The longest gospel is 28 chapters. The longest gospel is Matthew. Um, of course, we got four gospels for Jesus, and a, and a, and a chapter is not a, you know, a refined m- unit of measurement, right? Chapters are different sizes. But the point is, the Old Testament takes up a lot of real estate, a lot of territory is taken up with David's story. So now we say goodbye to this king that we've gotten to know so well. This last chapter of 2 Samuel is not the last event that happened in the life of David, but it's been placed here for thematic and narrative purposes because it brings together the two great themes of 1st and 2nd Samuel. The two great themes that we've kept coming back to over and over are the king and the temple. At, at, the, at the end of Judges, that's where we start developing this theme of the king. It starts back in Deuteronomy 17, but in Judges, at the end of Judges, 
What do we find at the end of Judges? There is no king in Israel, and every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. Well, there is a king in Israel, and his name is Yahweh. But the Levites are not holding forth Yahweh's kingship before the people. In fact, the last section of the book of Judges all has to do with the failures of the Levites. And then we get over into 1 Samuel, and we find another priest who's really messing up, and his sons are really messing up bad with the people at the temple. And so we believe that the, the reason that our society has disintegrated and the reason that there's so much corruption is that we just don't have a king. We need a king, and so we cry out for a king. In Samuel, then we get human kings, and we get to see, will they submit themselves to Yahweh as king, or will they set themselves up as God? So with Saul and David, we get the bad king, good king uh, motif. And so that's one theme of these books of First and Second Samuel. The, the, the other theme is the temple. The story of First Samuel began with a temple uh, that was being attacked, dismembered, and destroyed by the Philistines. Now you think, wait, wait a minute, it was a tabernacle, right? It was a tent. Yes, but when Hannah drops Samuel off, uh, at, at, the, at, at the house of God. It's called a temple. When Hannah goes to pray, she prays at the temple. Go back and read it again. The word temple is there. Now, it could be that the tabernacle at that point had uh, been uh, so established that permanent buildings and permanent structures were built up around it, so it's more of a temple. And, and that could be why they called it a temple. But the theme of the temple starts right there. And so that old tabernacle, that old temple is ripped apart. The, all, the Ark of the Covenant is removed and it's never put back together again. The, the, the tabernacle is never uh, a, an institution after the Ark of the Covenant is removed. And even though David brings the Ark back into Jerusalem and he desires a permanent house for God, the whole system is never put back together again until Solomon builds the temple. So now at the end of this book, in chapter 24, we're going to see David making preparations to bring it all back together again when he purchases the land that the temple is going to rest on. So this last chapter brings together these two themes to a fine point, the king and the temple. There's one other very important context for the events of chapter 24, and that's looking back to what we studied last week in chapter 23, that list of mighty men who served David, that sets up the military context of this final chapter of 2 Samuel. We are still dealing with the armies of Israel. David's act in chapter 24, his act of, of taking a census is about mustering military personnel, as we will see and as I'll show you. Remember that list last week, the last man mentioned in chapter 23 is Uriah the Hittite. And I mentioned, you know, it kind of brings the whole list down to a thud. You know, we have all these exciting stories about giant killing and heroics. And then, and then we're brought to remember Uriah and all of the heart sickness that comes with remembering that awful story. So, so we recall Uriah right before this last chapter in, in 2 Samuel. And we're going to see David sinning in regard to the military again. The second great sin of David reminds us a lot of the first. In this chapter, it's going to repeat. The history is going to repeat. David sins. A prophet comes to him. There's going to be a curse because of his sin. The sheep suffer because of the sin of the shepherd. And then the chapter concludes with David's repentance. We've seen this before. That previous story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah provides the backdrop for this story. 
Okay, having, having introduced it, let's walk through it now. And I just read the first two verses, but let's get, it, let's get it back in our head. Chapter 24. Again, the anger of Yahweh was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. Well, the very beginning of this sentence, the very beginning of this verse presents a very complex question. We read that the anger of Yahweh was aroused against Israel and he moved David to number the people. Well, if numbering the people like this was a sin, and it turns out that it is, doing this is a sin, and if Yahweh was was the one who stirred up David to do it, then it appears on the surface that the Lord is working against himself, doesn't it? It looks like on the surface that God is just kind of stacking the deck against David. He's both uh, motivating him to do this, and he's also judging him for doing it. It may be helpful to point out that when Chronicles repeats the story, there's, a, there's an important data point there. We read, now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Now, these are not contradictory uh, at all. We know from Job when... Uh, Satan asks uh, the Lord if he can deal with Job. Satan has to get permission. When uh, Jesus is speaking to Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus tells Peter, he says, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you like wheat. And when you go through that, when you're done, strengthen the brethren. uh, Jesus says to Peter, Satan's asked for you, and I'm going to let him have you. I'm going to let him tempt you. Uh, Second Corinthians, Paul writes, "Um, a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet me. Uh, So we know from these and other places that Satan only works by divine permission, but God does give him permission. God does does give him space to tempt, just as we heard in the gospel reading this morning, that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to do what? To do battle with Satan out there in the wilderness, to be tempted by Satan. So if even Jesus is subjected by the Holy Spirit to the temptations of Satan, and if Job was, and if Peter was, and if Paul was, and here David is, then we understand that number one, Satan only acts by God's permission. And number two, yes, in fact, God does allow him to do his work for his purposes. But Satan only works by divine permission and only uh, within God's purposes. So uh, in the end, of course, uh, David doesn't blame God and David doesn't blame Satan. David takes full responsibilities for his actions. He doesn't blame. So just as Jesus withstood temptation, David could have withstood this temptation, but didn't. Well, the bigger question for me, though, is why does the Lord do this? Why does the Lord expose David to this temptation? Well, in the first few words, we read that the anger of Yahweh was aroused against Israel. Their behavior displeased God. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know Israel good enough to know that it was probably something to do with idolatry and corruption and abuse and all the kinds of things that they kept up throughout their history. But God's anger was aroused against Israel and and their behavior displeased God. And so he allowed David to be tempted into doing something oppressive and tyrannical that brought judgment on the people. Well, this is the way it works, isn't it? When our ways displease God, He gives us corrupt, oppressive rulers. If a nation's ways don't please the Lord, they're going to suffer under tyrants. And if your ways don't please God as a nation, then you can run all the right people for office that you want to run. 
you can set up the most wonderful platform for, for politicking, but if the people don't submit themselves to God, even the best rulers are going to be a curse to us. I mean, I think we'd all love to have David as king, uh, good and bad. I think he'd be wonderful. But uh, when, when the people don't submit themselves to God, even the best rulers are a curse to us and oppress us and get involved in all kinds of corruption. God gives us the leaders we deserve when our ways don't please him. And when our ways do please him, when we repent, then he changes the hearts of our rulers. Proverbs 21 says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So if the Lord can convert Nebuchadnezzar, and if he, convert, he can convert Ahasuerus, and if he can convert Constantine, well then he can convert anyone in office today and transform him into a Christian leader. So then, maybe our best political strategy might be this. Maybe... Uh, maybe rather than just endlessly griping about those in authority, maybe rather than joining in the politics of outrage, which both conservatives and liberals do, joining in this constant outrage, maybe we invest all of that emotional energy into prayer and fasting. Maybe we work on the reformation of the church so that God would be pleased to give us better rulers. Uh, I don't think any of the talking heads on TV or radio will suggest that as a, as a strategy, but it seems to be the biblical strategy. It seems to be what God points us to. Well, the Lord's anger was aroused by the disobedience of his people, and David was tempted to number the people in such a way that it provoked God's judgment. Now, the pressing question here is, why is it such a big deal that David ordered a numbering of the people? Why is that wrong to just count, count heads? What's wrong with that? Why does even Joab resist him? Joab says, uh, you sure you know what you're doing, David? Now, if, if, if Joab's conscience is pricked, you know something is up. At verse 3, Joab said to the king, Now may Yahweh your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are. And may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? Well, there's nothing wrong with a census, but Joab knows there's something more going on here. Uh, the Lord ordered a census back in the book of Numbers. So there must have been something about the attitude or the motivation or the reason behind the numbering that, that even Joab picked up on. In fact, this isn't simply a census. David is intending to count all of the fighting men of the nation and impress them into military service. He's calling a big nationwide draft is what he's doing. We're going to see this as we walk through the test. If you say, oh, I'm not sure about that, watch as we walk through the text. What happens here? Um, as we saw last week, Israel didn't have a big standing army. That's why I went into all of this last week uh, that to, to show you the uh, military structure of, of Israel. What did they have? They had three captains, right? And then they had the 30 mighty men, the elite fighting force, you know, the, the Navy SEALs or the Green Berets. They had the elite fighting force. And then other places mention a company of, of 600 men that were on call for special needs. But that was it. That was, that was the full structure of Israel's military, at most like 633 men total. If the nation was invaded, though, what do you do? You blow the trumpet, you muster all the men from all the tribes of all the militias, all the men of fighting age, you beat your plowshares into swords, and you go to war. But they aren't under attack right now, and this is not a time of war. 
They, these people are not David's to muster whenever he pleases. These people are God's army. They are his temple. As I pointed out last week, remember when they were in the wilderness, they were arrayed in military formation around the ark and around the tabernacle. God sat in the middle of a warrior temple in the wilderness. But now what David is doing is turning the whole nation into a professional army and putting himself in the middle of that. The Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians, he talks about the man of sin, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or all that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And that's what David is doing here. David is the man of sin, uh, putting himself in the place of God in the midst of the temple, sitting, as it were, in that throne in the middle of of the warrior temple. And that's what you and I do every time we rebel against God, every time we break his law, every time we question his goodness, every time we doubt his justice, we grasp for control, we take him off the throne and we crown ourselves king and Lord over all. And that's what David is doing. We we see the severity of David's sin and the character of his sin when we see the Lord's response to it. When, what is the, eventually, we'll get here in just a few minutes, but, but what does the Lord do in response to this? Well, he sends a plague. He sends a plague when David does this. Who gets plagues sent on them? Pharaohs do. What, if, what does Pharaoh do wrong? Well, Pharaoh, back in the Exodus, he, he treats uh, God's people as if they're his own. Pharaoh seizes the people and puts them to work on his own projects. He desires to kill their little ones as if they belong to him. Now, David's earlier sin, and this, we're always looking back to that sin as a mirror of this one. In David's earlier sin, it was a Pharaoh-like sin in seizing Bathsheba, desiring to kill Uriah, and using the military to cover it up. Uh, Samuel warned us about this. Samuel warned us that a king like the nations would seize your sons and daughters. And when David sins... He sins just like that pagan king that that Samuel warned us about. Uh, David has taken daughters. He took Bathsheba. He seized uh, concubines. When when Absalom took over the house, remember, there was a bunch of concubines there. And David has seized daughters. And now he's trying to take their sons. Uh, He's acting like a pharaoh. He's acting like a king of the nations. So in chapter 24, he's seizing the people behaving just like a king of the nations, he's not just interested in how many people there are. He's interested, as we'll find out, he's interested in how many fighting men there are. Why does it matter? Why does it matter how many fighting men we have? When Israel was victorious in, in, in uh, conflict with other nations, um, we find it was because they were faithful. It didn't matter if they had every man in the nation fighting with them. It didn't matter if they had 300 men, as with Gideon. It didn't matter if they had one man, as it was in the days of Samson. Their victories are never based on having the most numbers or the best weapons. In fact, they never have the, most, the greatest numbers or the best weapons. That's because God intends for his people in their fight to give him the praise. He gets the credit. He always uh, gets the honor. So it doesn't matter how many fighting men you have if the Lord is with you. So by doing this, David is demonstrating a faith in physical might over and above the Lord's protection. Well, again, it takes a lot to make Joab uncomfortable. Joab doesn't think this is a good idea. 
And we could say, well, maybe one of the reasons he didn't like it was because if we have this new military infrastructure, then maybe Joab loses his place. You know, there's all the, these new, uh, uh, you know, captains and generals, and, and Joab's not going to be top dog anymore. Uh, but, but not only did Joab disagree, but all the other uh, captains of the army disagreed with this, with this move. In verse 4, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. They all disagreed. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the number of the people of Israel. Everyone's against this, but David goes against the advice of everyone around him. And then they submit and they go throughout the land. Verse 5, And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Aurora on the right side of the, of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jazer. And they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hodshi. And they came to Dan Jan and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the uh, south Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. If I could draw a map in front of you or pull up a map of, of Israel and draw out their progress, it would form a square. The, they went through the whole land in the shape of a, of a square. Um, and uh, there was a uh, um, the squaring off the nation ties off that, that temple theme. Who do they count though? What, what are they numbering? They're not, they're not numbering up you know, teenagers. They're not counting old men. They're not, they're not counting uh, women. The, the number that they come back with is the number of what? Valiant men who drew the sword. That's who they're interested in. And also the fact that Israel and Judah are numbered separately shows the remaining division between the two and shows why this is so unwise. We've had so much trouble so far between north and south, and it's just bubbling under the surface. And this is just another opportunity for conflict. Israel could say, oh, wow, we outnumber them. Maybe it's time to take over. Here's another interesting little bit. How long did it take for them to do this count? Nine months and 20 days. And then as soon as the count is finished, David is racked with guilt. Verse 10, and David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to Yahweh, I have sinned greatly in, that I have, in, in what I've done. But now I pray, O Yahweh, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Was there another time when David did something sinful and he was racked with guilt after nine months and a few days? Yeah, remember, it was after Bathsheba gave birth to a son, Solomon, and that child was a few days old that Nathan goes to David, Nathan the prophet. The same timeline here. It, it points again back to the other, other sin. This time, though, we see a little bit of progress. We see a little bit of maturation, a little bit of sanctification. This time, David confesses his sin outright and admits that he's done a very foolish thing. He does it without the prompting of the prophet this time. A prophet's still going to come to him, but this time he does it before the prophet comes. I love uh, one author, Eugene Peterson, says, he says, David does not always obey God, but David always deals with God. And that is what makes him a man after God's own heart, that David never runs from the Lord. David faces the Lord and the Lord is always ready and willing to deal with David. Uh, and so his heart is racked with this guilt. Verse 11, when David arose in the morning, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Gad, David's seer saying, go and tell David, thus says Yahweh, 
I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. God gives David three options. Seven years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days plague. And in each one of these options, the, sh- the time frame gets shorter, but the affliction grows more intense. So what David does is he throws himself on God's mercies. He knows that the same hand that strikes him is going to be the same hand that delivers him. And that implies he, he picks the plague. He picks the direct supernatural judgment of God. Not the famine, not the enemies, but he's ready to receive chastisement directly, immediately from God's hand, depending upon God in the midst of that to forgive and relent. So the Lord does just that. He sends a plague in verse 15. So Yahweh sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, Yahweh relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to Yahweh when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. God sends an angel of destruction. And 70,000 of the men that David so proudly numbered, 70,000 died. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, Yahweh called it off and said, It's enough. Now restrain your hand. David cries out in repentance one more time and God's word comes to him. Uh, I'm sorry, Gad comes to him with with the word of the Lord. Verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to Yahweh on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Gad the prophet directs him to go build an altar on the threshing floor of this Jebusite. This is going to be the site of the temple. And that's the pattern, again, that we've got, right? Uh, We've had a Pharaoh seize God's people, and God sent a plague by the angel of death. So what what happens next? Well, we come out and we build the tabernacle. This is a Passover scene. Uh, We get out, and now it's time to go build God's house. Same pattern we've seen in Exodus. The property that God directs him to go by belongs to a Jebusite. Now, what is a Jebusite? A Jebusite is a man of Jebus. Jebus was the old name for the city of Jerusalem. Maybe this was a Jebusite man who stuck around after David conquered the city. He owned a mountain that he used as a threshing floor, a place to beat the grain out and separate it from the chaff and the dirt and the stuff that you you don't want, so you keep the grain. Threshing floors are typically on a high place, ideally, uh, in order to better catch the breeze and better to help you do your job. As it turns out, this man's threshing floor was on a mountain that held a great place as a historical landmark for the people of Israel. Second Chronicles tells us that this mountain, Mount Moriah, was the place where Abraham nearly sacrificed Isaac. Remember that. So Gad sends David on an urgent mission to go buy this plot of land and erect an altar there. Let's finish the chapter. Verse 19. 
So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as Yahweh commanded. Now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, why has the Lord my king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to Yahweh, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may Yahweh your God accept you. And the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to Yahweh my God, which... Uh, that with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to Yahweh and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So Yahweh heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Um, so this uh, Aruna, he offers to not only give David the land, but the oxen and the wood for the fire and the sacrifice as well. But David sounds a lot like Abraham. Remember when he was negotiating over the burial plot for Sarah? Remember, Abraham didn't seize the land. He insisted on buying it. He didn't take it. The people of the land just offered to give it to him, but he said, no, I'm going to pay for it. And Sarah's grave at Machpelah was a pledge of his future inheritance uh, for the whole land. And that little purchase of land by Abraham was the first toehold into the land of promise. It was the first foray into conquering the land. Her burial place was the first piece of land that the covenant people owned. Now here at the end of this narrative, at the end of the conquest, David has finally conquered the last stronghold. David negotiates with the people of the land just as Abraham did. He buys a plot of ground. These two events frame the whole history of the conquest and the settlement of the land. At this point, the land is completely settled. David offers ascension offerings and peace offerings. Yahweh hears David pray, David's prayers and the plague is withdrawn. Now, what a, what a fascinating, rich way to conclude this book. We're, we're reaching all the way back to Abraham and Isaac where we get the first promises of the land. We get a promise of a covenant people, which no man can number, even though David attempts to, no man can number. And then we're reaching also back to the disintegration of the tabernacle and then reaching forward to Solomon's work to build the temple on this very same plot of ground where Abraham offered his son Isaac. And then reaching even further forward into the eventual ripping apart of that that temple that Solomon builds at the end of Kings. If you look at Samuel and Kings as one big story art, at the beginning of, of Samuel, we have the tearing apart of the tabernacle. Then uh, it lies in ruins until we get to the middle of the narrative, which is uh, the beginning of 1 Kings where we construct the temple. And at the end of 2 Kings, the temple is torn apart. Well, it's going to be put back together by Ezra and Nehemiah, but it's going to be destroyed again and uh, again. Uh, and, and, and then we have it fully replaced by Jesus and his people, where once again, we've got a temple made of people. Uh, and that was the goal all along. Jesus, we find, is going to be the greater King David who offers the ultimate sacrifice on a hill to turn away Yahweh's wrath and to secure a place for God's house to grow. So even though David sins as the first Adam, yet in so many ways he points us to the second Adam. In David, we see a glimmer of how our king loves us and how our king serves us. David's valor, his giant killing, his worship are all, are all indicators 
and foreshadows of Jesus and his character. Even David's failures point us to Jesus and that his failures point us to, uh, to the sinless king. They create in us a hunger for, for Jesus. And remember, as somebody said this Wednesday night at prayer meeting in our discussion, all of our heroes are flawed heroes. Outside of Jesus, everyone is flawed. We, we have this ridiculous modern demand for perfection. So that if we've honored somebody at some point in our history, and then we find out that he did something that doesn't fit with the modern narrative, then we completely have to wipe him off the books and pretend like he never existed. Well, we don't, we don't do that. We don't do that with David. We love the things that, that point us to Jesus. And even in his errors, we give thanks. I mean, how would you like for the worst days of your life to be recorded in scripture, to be scrutinized by God's people for thousands of years. Would any of you like that? Well, that, that's what happens to David. And so while we grieve with him in his sin, we rejoice with him in his victories, he is not Jesus. We appreciate him, we love him as a brother, but in all of this, he points us to Jesus. And that's, that's a summary of the book of Samuel. But I wanna offer one other brief thought in reflection on this particular chapter. What kind of sin was this that David committed here? David reached out his hand to exercise control over God's people. His behavior is consistent with a believer who thinks that, I'm sorry, his behavior is consistent with a ruler who believes that God's people are fundamentally his people and that he can use them or manipulate them or marshal them to serve his purposes whatever they are. David uh, repents, so we don't really know what he intended to use this army for, but whatever he, it was, when he's in the midst of doing this, he believed God's people were his to control, to conform God's people to his purposes and impress God's people into his service. This is a satanic impulse. Remember, uh, Chronicles mentions Satan's influence over this. Satan is a slave driver. Satan is a pharaoh. Satan is a tyrant. Satan is a despot. Satan rules by manipulating people into his dominion. Satan is the great opponent of diversity. Satan doesn't want Trinitarian diversity. He wants uniformity. He wants bland, homogenized sameness of thought, sameness of speech, sameness of behavior, sameness of dress. Satan wants everyone in his uniform singing his songs, thinking his thoughts, parroting his speech without variation, without individual expression. He wants everyone to be like him, hateful, cruel, without any wiggle room. And again, you see this in the discourse of our day. You know, you can say anything you want. You've got free speech. You've got freedom of speech so, that, so long as you stay on the progressive message, right? You don't vary from that. But as long as you say what we want you to say, you've got freedom of speech. And that's how Satan loves it. He's a racist. Satan loves his own race, which is the seed of the serpent. And he enslaves his race under his control and in darkness. This, this compulsion, this desire for control is satanic. Do you see anywhere that you and I are often tempted the same way that David was, with the same tyrannical impulse by the same tyrannical tempter? Don't you just wish that you could force specific people to comply with your wants and desires? Don't you want for their lives to fit your narrative of what you want to happen? How many times have you thought, if only that person would change, if only that person would do differently and do what I think they should do, then I could be more faithful. I would be happy. 
I would be more righteous and I could do what is right if only they would do what they need to do. They need to change and if they would change, then I would be happy. And following from that is an effort to impose your reign, impose your standards, impose your values on them so that they would make your life more, uh, more comfortable, more pleasurable, more easy. Now, I'm not talking about teaching God's standards. I'm not talking about leading in a way that points people to Jesus. I'm talking about uh, behaving in such a way that you're drafting your own commandments, your own lists, your own decorum, and then expecting everyone to conform to your image, to serve you. And then if they don't, then you're completely willing to sin in response to their failure to conform to your image, whether it's pitching a fit or going cold and silent, or getting hateful when your target doesn't do what you want them to do. We, we have a whole tool chest of methods we use to exert control over others. Harsh judgment, criticism, sarcasm, mocking, shaming, intimidation, threatening, weeping, playing the victim, exploiting weaknesses, lack of empathy. Uh, some of our methods are passive, some of them are aggressive, some of them are, are passive aggressive, and, and they're all cruel and hateful. How often have you been browbeaten and bullied and, and ended up loving the person who did that to you? Do you really love that person when they treat you that way? When they criticize and shame you into compliance? Do you love that person? Do you love following them? No, but we all love it when that person does it to somebody else to make them comply with us, right? We, hey, yeah, go get them. Go, go bully that person. Go, go coerce them. So there's this assumption and I hear it a lot, expressed in a lot of different ways. There's this assumption that if there is a lack or if there is a weakness somewhere, then it must be a failure of someone to force someone else to do what is right. It's all about force. It's all about control. The expectation is that we ought to be able to force people to do what we think they need to do, and then we would all be happy. But Jesus, Jesus addressed this directly. When the mother of James and John, she pushes, pushes her boys up to Jesus and, and she says, can they have special seats of power and influence? And what did Jesus say? He said, look, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They are despots, they are tyrants. And those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. For just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus lays out the blueprint. In God's kingdom, we don't change people. We don't transform situations through domination tactics. We don't bully people. We don't browbeat them and coerce them and verbally abuse them into submission to Jesus. We don't stretch out our hand and manipulate God's people and act as if they're there to serve us. We don't erect new extra biblical standards that everyone is expected to conform to and then draw lines of who's with me and who's against me. Cults do that. Sure. I call them cults, right? <laughs> we don't seek to change people through shunning and disapproval and hateful speech and actions. Cults do that. But when we want to see change, how do we do it? What's the blueprint? We start by picking up our cross, by denying ourselves, denying our comforts, denying our satisfaction, desiring, uh, denying our desires, not imposing them, but denying them. How does it start? It starts by picking up a bowl of water and a rag 
and washing somebody's feet. David was at his best when he was that servant king, when, when he was at war with God's enemies and he was blessing the people through protection and, and worship and leading them as a servant of God. David was at his worst when he reached out his hand to manipulate. He did it with Uriah and Bathsheba. He, he tried to grasp the whole kingdom for his purposes. This misplaced control was his besetting sin, trying to be the Lord where he had no authority. And then, and then on top of that, failing to lead his sons where he did have authority. That's an interesting observation, that people who are the biggest control freaks also tend to have these gaping blind spots of failure and abdication, where actually if you would just control what God gave you to control, I think you'd be happier. But I can't. I can't face that, so I've got to try to control something over here that's outside of my jurisdiction. People of God, beware of this impulse toward control and manipulation and repent of it wherever you tend to fall into it because it is not a strength. It looks like strength, but it's not. This is not biblical authority. It is satanic weakness. Strength is getting down on your hands and knees and serving someone. The church is not ours to conform to our image or to serve our purposes. No Christian will stand before the judgment seat of you. No Christian will stand before the judgment seat of me. The church belongs to Jesus. It is his to reign over. You will only be happy and you will only be blessed and you will only have peace if you get off the throne and allow him to be king. Let's pray.